Hey all, thank you for tuning into Women Birders Happy Hour. My name is Hannah. I'm a birder, a woman, and someone that enjoys a good drink after a long day of birding. Women have been integral to birding since it started, but we haven't always been recognized for the contributions and impact we have. Men have dominated the guiding scene, festival circuit, leadership positions, and publications. And according to a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 2011 report, in the U.S., there were over 47 million birders. The majority of these birders are college-educated, they are white, they are women, and mostly are over the age of 55. And if you put all these factors together, we create the typical birder, a white, college-educated woman over the age of 55. And that's a demographic that I often see out birding, but I don't as frequently see as a speaker, a guide, or a sole publisher. Additionally, the voices of all women, BIPOC, and LGBTQ plus birders are not well represented in the birding voices we hear from. So I created this show to bring in more voices. Not to say that some of the regular festival keynotes aren't great, but there is room for others. And on the show, I'm asking everyday women from all walks of life to join me to discuss their experiences, their resources, and advice that they have for others. And I want you to remember that just because you may not have experienced some of these things, like sexism or gatekeeping, doesn't mean that they aren't real issues that others face. And because some of these conversations are best had over a cocktail or a mocktail, I also create a unique cocktail for each guest in case you want to mix yourself a drink and join us for this chat. Birding can take you on some truly incredible adventures. And as Heidi mentions, you know, some days are Thornbill days, some days are non-Thornbill days. Every day is different. And it's always an opportunity to see or hear some really cool things, whether it's in your backyard and checking out, you know, the crows that I see in my backyard, or whether it's across the world and checking out Tasmanian Thornbills. Um, there's just so much opportunity to see cool things and experience each day as it comes. So short-tailed shearwaters are the most abundant seabird in Australian waters. They're also called yola by aboriginals or moonbirds and muttonbirds by others. They're a, a blunt-tailed black-billed shearwater that is one of the larger species of shearwater. They feed on fish, crustaceans, and squid by foraging, uh, by diving from the surface of the water or plunging from a few feet above the water. And they use their wings to swim underwater and can dive up to 60 feet deep. They nest in southern and eastern Australia from September to April. Individuals will start breeding at about five years old and will nest in colonies on islands or on the mainland. And the majority of their activity is at night. Their nests are burrows dug in soil under grass or scrub. Both males and females will work on excavating the burrows. And this, um, these burrows can be used for many years. After mating, the female will lay one white egg, which is then incubated for about a month and a half. The nestlings are cared for by both parents who return at night to regurgitate food for uh, the next two to three months after it hatches. They feed the chick every for two to three days before leaving uh, to continue foraging, and sometimes they can be gone for more than a week. At which point, when the chick grows up, the adults will abandon the young, who eventually figures out what they need to do. So this species is far from decline. Um, in fact, it's one of the most abundant species, as I mentioned, that harvesting still persists in a practice called mutton birding. Mutton bird was first used by uh, a term first used by early settlers on Norfolk Island who harvested 
Providence petrels for food and had also turned to these sheer waters as well. And it is a huge part of Aboriginal culture, and it's an important practice that continues today of harvesting chicks and eggs that has gone on for many generations. So to make your short-tailed shear water, here's what you'll need. One ounce of vodka, two ounces of hot espresso, half an ounce of Kahlua, and a quarter ounce of simple syrup. So your directions are to pour all those ingredients over ice in a shaker, shake, 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 and, and strain into a martini glass. And, you know, I really chose this cocktail because uh, it's something that you'll need to help stay awake if you want to watch the short-tailed shear waters come into their burrows um, if you happen to be in a nesting area or it's a great drink to enjoy while chatting about these species that you would like to see some evening. So please enjoy a glass and learn more about Heidi. Well so I have Heidi here with me. Heidi would you please tell everyone who you are? Hi Hannah, thanks for having me. Um, my name is Heidi Krajewski. I'm a Canadian birder, originally from Northern Ontario. Um, I studied biology on Vancouver Island and now I live in Tasmania, a beautiful island at the bottom of Australia. That's awesome. So how long have you lived in Tasmania? Um, it's been nearly 10 years since I've lived here now. And what drew you to go there? Um, oh gosh, that's a long story. Um, <laughs> my husband and I met on a charter boat and after we were married, we lived on a sailboat for 12 years. So wow. when we left Canada, we spent three and a half years sailing the Pacific, exploring beautiful places and birding. And when we arrived in Tassie, the plan originally wasn't to stay forever. We were just going to stay for a few years. My husband is Australian. So um, the plan was, you know, when you run out of money, get to Australia, go back to the working world and then carry on sailing. But we fell in love with Tassie and sold the boat, never looked back and have really settled in and love it here. Well, that's an amazing story. So tell us how you first started getting into birding. Um, so I've always loved being in the wilderness. I grew up in a very rural part of northern Ontario in the bush, basically in Canada. But culturally with my family and just the community I grew up, there was three reasons to be in the bush. Um, it was fishing, hunting, or collecting wild berries. <laughs> and I think it was my dad that actually realized I just loved being there, you know, whether it was hours getting bitten by mosquitoes, just for the sake of it, not for the hunting gathering aspect. And I assumed I was gonna go in the military actually, just cause I was a tomboy and I loved being outside all the time. And I actually joined the Naval Reserve, believe it or not. And I remember being on the bridge of this little training ship on a weekend exercise. I was quite young and I was having a lovely time looking at rhinoceros outfits with my binoculars. <laughs> and it was a, such an awkward experience. I remember the captain of the ship was quite aghast, but it was wonderful. And I'm quite grateful because we both realized by the end of the weekend, this is not where I'm meant to be in the world. And um, I ended up getting a job instead as a deckhand on a charter boat and I was just washing dishes and driving Zodiacs, but I worked with some phenomenal naturalists on that boat. We did 10 day trips to Southeast Alaska and the Great Bear Rainforest and some of Canadians most amazing naturalists would come for, you know, these little rock star contracts on the ship. And I was just this wide eyed sponge and I didn't even know this sort of 
field of joy existed really so that that's it I was off I was hooked um you know I remember recording my first species list in a diary while working on that boat and very shortly after that's when I went to university and down the rabbit hole I went and birds have been a big part ever since really so it was a sort of a weird trajectory to discover birding and and, and just loving observing the outdoors well, it's amazing. So um, has has the ocean and sailing just always been kind of a, a thing in your life? Or was it the Navy that really got you in on that? Um, no, I mean, I grew up in a very landlocked, bushy part of Canada. I was always on the water in a small boat or a canoe, like I said, fishing and hunting was a big part of my upbringing. Um, but I was a sea cadet as a teenager. So that's what drew me to the coast each year for a part of my summer anyways. And that's what drew me towards, you know, a possible military career. Um, and I was just blown away the first time I saw the ocean. And I've been quite drawn to it ever since. But it definitely wasn't an early, early part of my life. That's for sure. I grew up on the, you know, Oregon coast. And uh, I have a lot of friends that are from, like, the Seattle area. And, like, the you know, the Pacific coast on, on the U.S. is not necessarily somewhere you really want to like go hang out like there's surfers but you don't really scuba out here so much but I have all these friends from Seattle that are like oh yeah we would sail all the time and I just feel like I I miss something you know growing up that I didn't go sailing it sounds fantastic like an amazing way to enjoy the Pacific in a safe way yeah, well hopefully safe way it is it was a magic carpet ride, both when I was really young, working on a boat. And then, like I said, for 12 years, my husband and I, that was our ticket to remote places that I, I know I probably couldn't have seen any other way. And we just lived this amazing sort of hippie lifestyle. But, but um, you know, we weren't out for margaritas on a beach. We were, you know, we'd sail 200 miles off the shore of Mexico to find a Guadalupe seal kind of thing. So we weren't on a normal sort of, increased life trajectory that's for sure it was pretty special way to see the world that sounds amazing so in tasmania like when you go birding on a normal day what does that look like for you um it's interesting i talk about i have this sort of saying that i have a thornbill or a non-thornbill day because birds are part of my life every day and I work as a guide now both on ships in the polar regions but also as a bushwalking guide here in Tasmania and Sometimes you don't have birders around you. And I told those my non-thornbill days, but thornbills are the quintessential little brown jobs in Tazzy. And there's times when you just don't have time to either point them all out or ID them all. But then there's times that are just like a luxurious binge of birding. And I've got a few dear friends here in Tazzy and we'll just potter the whole day away going birding without even a set destination necessarily in mind. Um, and there's a few things that are always happen on these lovely days of birding. There is always a thermos of good coffee. <laughs> um, for, for us, sometimes the quality of life isn't, um, isn't judged in the length of the species list, but it's the, you know, a cup of coffee enjoyed with your binoculars in a beautiful setting with a good friend. That's sort of a big part of our sort of luxurious days of birding. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, a good cup of coffee sounds good. So um, who or what do you think has been the most influential thing in your birding? Well, I talked about those naturalists on that charter boat that I worked with when I was really young. But I'm also going to say volunteering. 
when I first moved to Tassie, I was already an avid birder. And it took me a few years to really connect with the bird community here. There's a vibrant bunch of people who are professional and amateur birders. And it just, it felt like it took me a while to find them. And it was volunteering on a survey that connected me with some of the dearest friends I do have in the birding world here. And, um, and that happened to me in Canada as well. And, and so I think volunteering has been one of the biggest influences. Um, you always get partnered up with somebody more experienced than you as well. So it's a great way for anyone to learn really. So what kind of volunteering do you do there? Um, a lot of surveys. So there's, there's shorebird surveys that happen both summer and winter, both in the north of Tassie and in the southeast. And in the north, it's just phenomenal. It's a wonderful Ramsar, um, potentially Ramsar lifted site with thousands and thousands of um, summer migrants. So they are all these lovely shorebirds that breed in Siberia come down to Australia for winter. And so that's why there's a summer and winter camp because in winter they're all gone. And then we get this funny thing where there's a double banded plover from New Zealand, breeds in New Zealand and it comes east west. But um, so a lot of surveys like that. Um, um, yeah, there's quite a few different surveys like that in Tassie that I that I try and try and get onto as much as I can. That sounds like fun. So, um, switching gears a little bit into uh, woman birder, what has been your experience as a woman birder? Um, I feel very fortunate. Like I said, there's a thriving community of both professional and amateurs here in Tassie, and. A lot of them are women and they're inspirational. And I feel I feel like being a woman hasn't held me back here in Tassie for sure. I can think of at least one instance, this is probably over 20 years ago now, where you know I lived in a remote part of Canada and I volunteered on a breeding bird atlas. And because I was in a remote part of Canada, you know, my regional coordinator was thrilled because there's always it's always harder to get volunteers, you know, away from the cities. And it's actually possibly what hooked me on really, really listing a lot of birds. You know, I, I was just getting really into this atlas and I was doing point counts and, you know, everywhere I went, I was listing things and writing down data. And a couple of weeks into this project, I got this random email from some old dude, <laughs> um, you know, one of those old gatekeepers and it, and it was so disheartening and I can't remember the exact wording now but it was something like who gave you permission to do point counts on this survey and it totally knocked the wind out of my sails and I thought oh gosh I didn't think I needed permission on a volunteer citizen science project and I reckon he had no idea how how that shook me as a you know as a young female birder at the time I mean luckily I'm too stubborn to have let it <laughs> sort of stopped me for very long and I realized afterwards he was probably just trying to vet you know are you an experienced birder are you sending us a bunch of rubbish data but the wording was not encouraging at all and so um yeah it, it was the one the one time that sticks out in my mind and like I said it was 20 years ago and I'm sure the world is a better place than those remote parts of Canada but it, it, it obviously still existed but Luckily, that's been few and far between those kind of interactions. But it, uh, it also made me realize you never know when you might even accidentally sort of give someone a major road bump in their sort of volunteer or amateur birding world. <laughs> yeah, so on that, how do you feel that we can be more supportive of, better, of beginner birders? 
Um, well, I, I take that interaction with that old fellow as, as a really good lesson. You know, we might not even realize when we might be mentoring someone or influencing their choices or their enthusiasms. And I think it's just good for us all to remember every time we interact with another birder. And we might not even realize that they're less experienced than us, at least to begin with. You know, be gentle. We cannot, we're all allowed to make mistakes, you know, and we can be gentle with each other and encouraging and, and not sort of jumping horribly on each other because you just never know what influence you might have on other people. And it's just really healthy to remember that, I think. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, with that lesson that you learned, um, language matters and the words that you say, you know, can have a big impact on someone, even if you don't have that intention behind it. That's right. Like he might not have meant to intimidate the hell out of me that <laughs> um, But but yeah, like you said, language matters. And um, yeah, it's really good to remember that with everyone you interact with. So do you feel that you found your place in the birding community? I think so. I It probably took me a little while. When I first got like I said, it, it took me a while to meet the local birding community here, but I, 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 feel, I feel comfortable where I am. I've very recently joined the BirdLife Tasmania committee. And partly that was inspired because I wanted to make it encouraging and inclusive for other people. But yeah, I think I'm getting there. I feel comfortable where I am and who I am in the birding community here, which is lovely. That's awesome. So I know you've had probably just many, many amazing birding experiences, but do you have maybe one or two that are the most memorable? The one I feel incredibly fortunate in that a couple of years ago, and it was during COVID, so it was more good luck than good management, but my husband and I spent six months as the volunteer caretakers on a remote island. Wow. And it's it's called Metsiker Island. It's on the south southwest corner of Tasmania. And it's an extraordinary place. It's only about four kilometers long, this island. It's covered in thick prehistoric rainforest. But it's also home to about half a million pairs of burrowing short-tailed shearwaters. And so it's just this thriving place. And it also has um, diving petrels and prions and all sorts of other things nesting on it. But we were there for six months over summer, just the two of us, no one else on the island for six months. And every single evening at sunset, we'd stop everything, no matter what project we were on, down tools and watch the birds arrive because they only come into the island at night to avoid predators. And the sky would just fill with these thronging birds coming ashore. And then they'd be crashing through the forest and the sounds, you know, it, it, what was a quiet island during the day just becomes this cacophony of these nesting birds. And that happened every single night while we were there. And then in the morning, like it's such thick rainforest, in the morning these birds, they, can't, they need a bit of a runway to take off. And so any little bit of cleared land, like the lawn around the little house where we lived, or there's like a helicopter clearing for a landing pad, they would just pour out of the forest along the tracks to find these clearings to take off. And it was literally like a river of seabirds walking along the, the, the pathways of this island and taking off en masse just before dawn every morning. And it just felt so incredible to witness this, um, this amazing, rich place here in Tassie. So that definitely stands out in my mind of 
fruiting experiences for me. That's amazing. So what kind of work did you do there? Um, we were volunteers for Parks and Wildlife who manage the island. So a lot of um, sort of land management, you know, like I said, we mowed the lawn, which seems funny on a remote island, but it felt lovely because I felt like I was mowing the lawn for the sheer waters. Um, we also had to do the weather observations a couple of times a day for the Bureau of Meteorology. And there's um, it, there's a lighthouse on the island that's been there oh, about 130 years. So it's a heritage listed building that we sort of look after and maintain. And um, so it was just a magic, you know, because we were mostly there as volunteers, you know, you sort of worked as hard as you could and wanted to, but you had plenty of time to lean on your shovel, as I used to say, because there was such a beautiful array of birds and life around too. Wow, that's that's an incredible experience. So um, is that something that you do like six month stint and then somebody comes in the next six months and it just rotates and rotates? Yeah, yeah. They wow. they advertised for the position and, and usually fill about two years worth of slots. And you get about four days with the previous caretakers and the parks ranger to make sure, you know, you know how to operate all the equipment and the um, communications and everything else. And, and then that helps flies away and it's possibly one of the most profound moments when you listen to the helicopter disappear into the distance and you look at each other and you think wow this is it for six months we're alone on this island and then six months later the next couple come and you can see their excitement enthusiasm in their eyes and at the same time your heartstrings are sort of being pulled because you've just formed such an incredible connection to this wild place and it's time to give it up and let someone else experience it. So, <laughs> Wow, that's such an amazing experience. So I imagine that that's not a place that most people can go, but where do you think, wh what's a place where you think every bird should try to go? Well, this one's a bit more geared back to Canada. So for all the Canadians listening and for anyone who can, I think everyone should try and see Haida Gwaii which is the archipelago on the West Coast, close to the Alaska border, um, used to be called the Queen Charlotte Islands. It's just this wild, rugged, beautiful place. Um, it's got ancient murelets and storm petrels and the same sheer waters actually migrate past. I remember sitting on a sailboat off the Haida Gwaii once and the wind had died, so we were sort of not really sailing very far, but this river of shearwaters flying by on their migration. Little did I know back then that I would sort of see them on the other end, but um, it's just such a rich, wild, beautiful place um, to see seabirds. Even if you're not at sea on a ship, you know, it's just a really wild place to see birds. Well, it's a great suggestion. I'm definitely going to have to try to go there someday. So um, what changes would you like to see in the birding community? I, I would like to see everyone value the bird as much as we value our own experience with the bird. You know, I, what I guess I'm trying to get at is just a real pressure on the ethics of birding. You know, I, I really get frustrated when I see someone with a camera or even just been, you know, trying to get closer and closer and closer and, eventually putting that bird off. And I just think we really need to value the lack of disturbance in that bird's life more than our own sort of photo or species list. Uh, you know, we just we put so much pressure on birds everywhere in the world. It's just, it's just the one place we can really sort of um, pressure ourselves to behave as best as possible. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you there. So what do you think has been the most valuable thing you've learned from birding? I think humility. And what I mean is that it's okay to be wrong. Um, sometimes you don't see a bird well enough or you even just accidentally mis-ID something and it's okay. We're all learning. None of us are ever going to know everything. And, um, you know, even the experts, they might get it wrong once in a while or things might change. And so I just the humility to sometimes admit that I got it wrong and that's okay. It's a really great lesson that birds definitely taught me. I totally agree. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for sharing all of this amazing stuff. I'm so jealous about your time on the island and I'm going to have to look that up and see if I can get on the wait list. Um, <laughs> if folks want to find out more about you and the amazing things that you've done and you will do, um, is there a way they can do that? Um, I'm on Facebook under my, just my name and I'm sort of quietly in the background helping with other people to run the bird life Tasmania Facebook page these days as well. So I'm in there. <laughs> okay. So we'll look for you there. Well, thank you so much for sharing and uh, taking the time to talk with me. Thanks, Hannah. So thank you so much, Heidi, for joining me for this episode. It was so fun to get to know you. I just, I'm so blown back about all your cool adventures you've been on and would definitely love to follow in your footsteps someday. And, you know, I got to learn to sail and do all these really cool things that, that you've been doing. So, but it was so fun to hear about your adventures and I hope someday we can meet so I can hear more about them and all the cool things that you plan to do in the future. So, and thank you all for tuning into my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. You can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Music, and anywhere else you listen to me. If you'd like to connect with me on the socials, you can follow me at Hannah Goes Birding on Instagram. My Twitter is at WomenBirdersHH, or you can email me at WomenBirders at gmail.com. I also have resources and information on GoToBirdingPodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed this chat, and I look forward to seeing you at the next happy hour.